Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 say this. <clears throat> Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Think about these verses in light of this introduction that we're looking at as we come to the sixth chapter of Galatians. God the Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to pen the pages of the very Word of God that we have here before us in the book of Galatians. The primary reason for this letter to the Galatians is to correct false teaching. There was a lie that had circulated, it had made its way into the church of Gal- churches of Galatia, and they were taking th- this lie, which was the lie that brought forth the idea of it was works plus grace in order to be saved. You have to do these works of the law in order to be saved. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Read these words with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I don't know how many times I've heralded those words from this pulpit in the last six months. You ready? Don't you dare get sick of them. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we require others or trust in our own good works in addition to grace in order to save us, We have corrupted the gospel. And we already know from chapter 1, Paul even says, it's not even the same gospel. In fact, there isn't another gospel. There is the one gospel. However, in this latter portion of the book of Galatians, Paul's identifying a new dilemma that comes out of the gospel of grace. Uh, there's a tailspin, there's, a, there's another residual effect that, that people take on as they look to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they come to this conclusion, since it's all covered, we're just free to do anything we want to. And this is coming down to what Paul's starting to address here this morning, and what we've been seeing all through chapter 5, and now what we're seeing here in chapter 6. If salvation is only by grace, then does this mean that we can just live however we want to? And again, we've covered this quite clearly. We know Paul's resounding answer is, by no means, absolutely not. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that that grace may abound? By no means. 
Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Now, take those thoughts. This is all foundational. This is very important in light of where we're going to chapter 6 this morning. We take these thoughts, we recognize this is what Paul is now confronting in chapters 5 and chapter 6. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are free. We are no longer under the law. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We cannot justify ourselves. We are not self-justifying. It is only in Christ. But there's other very important teachings that we have to recognize. This doesn't mean we just let go and let God. Galatians chapter 5. I was considering projecting these. We have lots of cross-references from Galatians this morning. I'm going to give you the references. I want you to look at them in your own Bibles, the ones that are right there in front of you. Use your phone, use your iPad, use your paper scriptures, but look at these passages. Galatians 5, look at verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. 16. In addressing this issue of, can we just live however we want? Paul's confronting that now. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So when we see this concept, we see this this conflicting issue, the flesh, the Spirit. And again, not to reteach this aspect, but we recognize the fact that as we went through the previous passages of the book of Galatians, we recognize recognize the fact that at that moment of salvation, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you became a new creation in him, when you were born again, when you passed from death into life, all synonyms, that's all talking about the same instant, the same moment in time, God the Holy Spirit came and indwelled you. He resides within you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a reality. It is a fact. It is unchangeable. If you are a child of God, if you are a new creation in Him, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation, I am not trusting in my own righteousness. I am trusting in Christ, in Christ alone says this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because you are sons. By the way, not a latter experience, not something you've done to get the Holy Spirit to come. You have the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, another foundation. Take another step up here. Ready? Important foundations, steps that build us toward chapter 6. Not all who are indwelled, not all who call the Father, not all are sons who are adopted by the Son, through the Son, to the Father, not all who are indwelt are walking with the Spirit. There are times and seasons in my life, sometimes more frequent than others, that I am not led by the Spirit, not walking with the Spirit, not controlled by the Spirit, but I am led by the flesh. That doesn't change the indwelling. 
I'm still indwelled. That's when the Holy Spirit does a work of conviction and restoration and things like that happen. But I confess, and you all need to as well, there are times and seasons we know we are walking by the flesh and not led by the Spirit. But each one of us are commanded. We are instructed. We are admonished, you ready, to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be under the control of the Spirit, to submit ourselves to the Spirit who indwells us, to put off the flesh. Why? Because though we are transformed, though we formerly We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and now in Christ we've been made alive in him, that now we can look to the Father and cry out, Abba, Father, this is true, this is reality. Though the Holy Spirit is in fact working to sanctify us and conform us into the image in Christ, here's the reality. We still struggle with the flesh. That's chapter 5, verse 16, by the way. That struggle with the flesh. As we've said in the past, there's a whole different false teaching that's related to Gnosticism. We're not going to go there, but Gnosticism was false teaching that was happening in the New Testament era that condemned literally this flesh, the bones, the body that we have. This is evil. It's not at all what Paul's talking about here. It's not what he's addressing here at all. The flesh that's being addressed here is our sinful inclination toward the things of this world. It's our former self. It's our desire to do our own will, to satisfy our cravings for sin. By the way, as I'm saying these things, if you're realistic at all, you should be able to go, yeah, I know what that looks like. I know what that feels like. It's the flesh that is our sinful self-will. And the spirit and the flesh are in opposition to each other. It's a reality in our lives. In Galatians 5.19, the Word of God gives us a representative list of the works of the flesh. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. As we've said so many times, representative. This is not a complete bucket list. This is not an all-inclusive list. But he says, in a sense, such as. Here they are. Here's a representative list of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5. Actually, let's start with verse 18. It says, But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Not all inclusive, the list goes on. But... As we said in the last couple weeks as we worked through this passage, we should look to that list and conviction should fall pretty quickly, if we're honest. Yep, that looks like my flesh. That looks like my wrestling match. That looks like the opposition I deal with on a daily basis. Now, last step, okay? All building up to where we're going to in chapter 6. Some of you might be sitting there and saying, we've spent three or four weeks in chapter 5. We've addressed this so many times. Why is this so important? In fact, not only have we heard this, this sounds just like what we did last week. That is true. But without this foundation, what we're going to look at in chapter 6, 
frankly, it isn't going to make any sense. And I'm empathizing with you, those who are my students, students of the Word this morning. I know what it's like to be under teaching seven whole days ago, and you sit down, and the question comes up, what did we learn last week? And we have this blank spot between our ears, right? It's important that we remember what precedes this, because these aren't isolated passages. We're intended to look to this as the whole teaching from Galatians and how this all fits together. That's what I'm trying to help us do this morning. So... Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own works, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You guys? I'm just trying to say these in different ways because I want us to hear this. You know what? God has spoken to us this morning. Think about that. How can we say that so boldly? Because this is the Word of God. This is God's Word to us today. And so even as we started this morning looking at how the Word of God is recorded and brought forth the doctrine of inspiration and how this has taken place... Let's submit ourselves, let's be led by the Spirit as we seek to understand what God wants us to see in the very living Word of God this morning, okay? Three points in an outline this morning. Restore the brother. Number two, bear their burden. Number three, be humble. And I would add to that as you do this. Be humble. So here's the first point in our outline. Number one, restore the brother. This is found in verse 1, and when we think about this, just kind of a leading in thought, we live in a certain part of the country that doesn't like to confront anything. We live in a world that has a worldview that essentially says, live and let live. Uh, Don't ask, don't tell. We live in an area of Michigan that's often associated with Minnesota, but we can take this into Michigan as well, and we can just say, we're just Michigan nice, right? You know what I'm talking about? And to some extent, these kinds of thoughts of grace and looking over and non-confrontation are good practice in the secular world. To some extent, that's true. This is what we're going to see in this section of chapter 6 this morning. In the body of Christ, we are called to hold a higher level of responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often, the world's view of being nice to let live and don't ask questions and don't confront anything, it permeates into the culture of our local church. And what Paul is telling us is, not only are we supposed to address sin and transgression in each other's life, we are responsible to each other. Why? Because we love each other. And if I truly love you, I'm going to do what's more difficult for me to take care of you. 
Because that's the expression of love. Remember that? We talked with the kids about this. We are required to show love. We are required to show grace. We're required to show humility. But to ignore each other's sins, to say that again, to ignore sin in each other's lives is actually no love at all. This certainly fits into what Paul is addressing here in verse 1. Let me read verse 1 again, just the first part of it. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And I just want to point out again, those of you who have been going through Galatians with us, more family language. Sons, adoption, brothers, more family language. We are family. We are the household of God. We have been adopted by the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, verse 6. Look over to that. Galatians 4, verse 6 says this. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're seeing continually through this concept the idea of plurality yet oneness. We are the one another. We together are the household of faith, the body of Christ. We share this in common. We are fellows together, corporate, a plural relationship together, the one another relationship. We are children of God together. We compose, make up the body of Christ. You guys, we are in this together. We are not on an island We are not independent from each other. We have a duty to one another because we're family. We are not alone. We have a duty. And he says, in light of this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, the word transgression just simply means uh, to fall, to stumble, to be misled or to go astray. We could say this is synonymous with, with falling in sin. There's this direct correlation to this concept of transgression and works of the flesh. It's undeniable. Again, when we look to chapters and verses in the Bible, they're not bad, but these are not inspired, and so often they cause us to delineate the passage and what's being taught here. When he's talking about transgressions, there's no question he's talking about works of the flesh. If any one of you is caught in transgression... And we have to see that again in light of chapter 5, verse 19. Go to it. We read it a minute ago, but if you're an underliner, or at the very least scan over it, if you highlight however you want, these are the works of the flesh. I think these are the kinds of representative sins, representatively, that he's pointing toward when he talks about transgression. We see it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I'm rattling these through quickly. It doesn't mean that any one of them are light or trivial. These are serious matters. These are the works of the flesh. And they are absolutely inconsistent with our profession of faith as sons and daughters of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. If this kind of lifestyle is representative or is, indic- is, indic- is indicative of the kind of life that you live, you're living a life that is inconsistent with the calling that's been placed upon you as a child of God. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation, but it doesn't fit with who you say you are. 
transgression. This lifestyle is incongruous with our identity as sons of the Father. And we also have to recognize in verse 21 of chapter 5, again, this is a representative list. If you're looking at that list and you are personally filtering this through in yourself and looking at your life and evaluating your life and you're going, whew, my work of the flesh is not on that list. That doesn't mean you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. You are still responsible. Verse 21, and things like these. There's certainly other transgressions that our brothers and sisters or we personally may need to be restored from. There's certainly a longer list, and it shouldn't even be called a list. I shouldn't even say it that way. He makes it very clear. Verse 1, look at how he qualifies transgression, what's preceding it. Any that's limitless, without an end, any transgression. And so when we think about this idea, brothers and sisters in Christ, and our duty to one another in regards to these transgressions, we're going to say this numerous times because the text makes this super clear. We've received grace, and so therefore we must show grace. But that doesn't mean that we ignore. We've received grace, so therefore we show grace, but that doesn't mean we ignore We must allow our love for one another to cover over a multitude of sins. That's significant. Even though we see here in chapter 6, verse 1, any transgression, let's be real. There are going to be things that I have done and I do that annoy or sins against you. And maybe you and your grace and your kindness toward me and the way that you love me, you're able to look past those things. I need to do that toward you. We need to do that toward one another. Minor transgressions, for a lack of a better way to say it. We must, need, we must allow that love that we have for one another to look over, to cover over a multitude of sins. And we have no business judging our neighbor's splinter when we have a plank in our own eye. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it is extraordinarily clear in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are, notice that word, spiritual, should restore him. Because this is all related to chapter 5. Be led by the Spirit, not walking in the flesh. Hmm. What seems clear here again, based on chapter 5, is that those who are spiritual, those who are led by the Spirit, those who are in that place that they're walking under the control of the Spirit, they're walking with him, they're led by him, they're controlled by him. Those who are spiritual have a duty to restore. By the way, simple clarification, not crush, not destroy, not humiliate for the sake of humiliation, to restore their brothers and sisters in Christ, their fellow church members, the family who are walking according to the flesh, who are struggling in these transgressions. And again, notice the contrast. Lots of contrast in verses 5 and 6. The contrast is between the spiritual and the transgression. Just as there is a contrast between being led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the works of the flesh. That's the contrast. The word restore brings us back to some recent teaching that we had just at the very beginning of this year from Matthew 18. Do you remember that? Church discipline. Church discipline 
And what I think we see here is Jesus gave the instruction in Matthew 18 of this is church discipline. This is how you're to deal with an offense or a sin between brother and sister or brother in Christ. This is how you're to deal with it. What we see happening here in Galatians chapter 6 is Paul is saying, let's talk about doing that now. We have a duty, we have a responsibility to restore, to practice what Jesus taught us. In Matthew 18, he tells uh, that, that when a sin or an offense is between two brothers or a brother and sister in Christ, go to him, just the two of you. No one else even needs to know what happened. And what's really important, according to Matthew 18, verse 15, is this. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says in the latter part of this verse, is if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If you want to, you can take that word gained, bring it to Galatians 6, and think about the word restore. That's what we're talking about. You've restored your brother. You've been reconciled. There's been restoration. These things have happened. Going back to Matthew 18, just simply outlining that process. If he refuses to repent, if you are not restored, then come back with two or three witnesses. Again, we talked about this several weeks ago. And that still is no response, and you bring it to the corporate church. And if unrepentant, the church corporately, the visible church, the members of the body of Christ in the local church have a responsibility to remove this individual who is unrepentant from the fellowship of the church. This is not unloving. The purpose of this is not humiliation. The purpose is to win our brother. But there is also a matter of identification. What we recognize when we see this concept is we see in verse 1 of chapter 6, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Because if you are truly doing this as one who is led by the Spirit, those are the spiritual, you should exhibit what? What do those who, by the le- who are led by the Spirit, what do they exhibit? The fruit of the Spirit. Do you see how this is all fitting together? This isn't abstract thoughts. Uh, Paul doesn't need a dose of Ritalin because he's looking at squirrels all over the place. And I think I'll write about this and then this. He's writing this with a logic, with, with a structure. And this is the fruition of what we see happening in regards to the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit and being the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying this is how we practice these things. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love. Can I just reemphasize this? Spiritual ones. Those led by the Spirit. As you restore your brother, practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Because the world and the flesh confronts with the flesh. Think about that. Think about the way that your workplace confronts somebody who needs a disciplinary action. Or someone who just simply bugs you in your classroom. Someone who just isn't in the social circle. How does the flesh address that? Hmm. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. With an enmity strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. 
And so here's how we kind of pull this all together at this point in the discussion, though we're just in point one. If you are practicing this concept of church discipline and it looks more like the flesh, you're not practicing love, and this isn't at all what Jesus condoned or instructed us to practice. Super important. But the spiritual are to walk by the Spirit. And as we see this, we see in verse 25, I know I keep pointing back to chapter 5, so I have to tell you where I'm going. Chapter 5, verse 25, what does it say? If we live by the Spirit, you who are spiritual, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, flesh, provoking one another, flesh, envying one another, because that's the way the world does it. We are distinct from them. This is what it should look like when we restore each other from transgression. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Keep watch, it says in verse 1, that you are gentle. The fruit of the Spirit in this process that you don't revert back to the flesh yourself. That as you seek to restore, you don't do this in a fleshly manner. Don't do it with enmity and strife. Don't do it with conceit, provoking one another. So this begs a question. You ready? Here's the question. What does it look like when a brother, those who are spiritual, seeks to restore another brother who is stuck in the flesh, transgression? What does it look like? Well, according to verse 1, obviously it's with gentleness, controlled by the Holy Spirit, led by Him. Those are the spiritual ones, right? But verse 2 gives us a whole different structure. It gives us a whole different list of things that we need to look at. So here's our second point. Bear their burden. You guys, just to tease this out in advance, this is the way we live in love. We bear their burden. Bear one another's burdens, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love, bear the law of Christ. Love. So we need to start with the end of this verse. He points us back to a truth previously addressed again in chapter 5. Look at verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. When he talks about the law of Christ, we see this in verse 13, chapter 5. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Transgression, we could say. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is what controls all of this. Those who are spiritual those who recognize there's someone in our midst or someone near to us, someone that we love, who is a brother or sister in Christ and is struggling in the flesh, love is what controls us. We are seeking to fulfill the in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the command of the spiritual who are seeking to gently restore a brother who is caught in the trespass? Do it as Christ told you to do it. Do it selflessly. Selfless love. For what, for what is the law of Christ? Chapter 5, verse 14. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wives 
even as Christ loved his bride, the church, laying his life down for her. And then he says, but there's work to this. So let's kind of spin this a slightly different way. The burden is expressed in the way we love each other. Flip that the other way. Because we love each other, we're willing to take on the work of the burden. We're willing to take on the load. The work, the burden of restoration of one who is struggling in the flesh, you guys, it's a heavy load. And I'm not saying this arrogantly. I'm just saying this from experience. Bearing someone else's load who's struggling in sin is a heavy load. Too often when we think about this kind of a situation, when we think about bearing one another's, or bearing one another's burden and fulfilling the law of Christ, we often think about this issue of restoration or restoring this brother or sister in Christ. We think of it as like a one-off experience. There I had the conversation. My duty's done. And in my experience, it's very different from that. This includes nights, evenings, weekends, inconvenient times, laying aside my preferences, what I'd rather be doing on this time or this occasion, to stand alongside a brother or sister in Christ, maybe an individual, maybe a couple, maybe a family. And quite frankly, I think a lot of what's going on here in this restoration, it's discipleship. It's counseling. It's standing beside them. And doing this in ways that are messy, they're sacrificial, they're hard. It's not a one-time conversation. Sometimes these are the kind of discussions and discipleship, confrontations, corrections that go on for years and years. But that's an expression of the love that we have a responsibility to live in as we are followers of Christ. This is a shared burden. If we love each other, we will fulfill the law of Christ. Selfless love. Too often we don't view this process as a burden. We expect microwave results. Three and a half minutes for the bag of popcorn, and it's done. Four minutes, and it's burned. You know what I'm talking about? By the way, that's not how we make popcorn at my house, but that's fine. But look at chapter 5, verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 22. Now we know singular fruit of the Spirit, right? But it describes the fruit of the Spirit. And the one that pops in my mind is I see this issue of burden. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. Patience. We forget that we're called to be patient with our brothers as the Lord has been patient with us. We are to show grace as we are recipients of grace. We are to show patience even as the Lord has been patient with us. Calling us to repentance, by the way. Or do you presume on the riches of his his kindness, that's the Lord's kindness, by the way, and forbearance toward us from God himself, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, please don't misunderstand Obviously, according to Matthew 18, there is a time and a place that this comes to, not a conclusion, but we bring these to absolute points, I would say. It doesn't mean we just go on and on and on and ignore it. It's not what I'm saying. 
But what I am saying is, as we are spiritual and we have this responsibility to restore, we're called to do this according to the fruits of the Spirit, showing love. And one of the ways that we do that is in patience. The text is clear. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not enough for us to say to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, I love you. Any of you that are married, any of you that have a spouse, and even if you're not, you're going to get what I'm going to say. It's not enough for me to tell my wife that I love her, and that's the end of the story. It's not enough for me to say to you as individuals, I love you, and there's no action or deed that goes with this. I can tell Amy I love her, but those words aren't absolutely or enough to prove to her that I love her. It's what I do. So I can call her ten times a day and five more times during the day text her, I love you. Have I proven my love? No. Good answer. <clears throat> I will point out who just said those words. It might help. Seriously, think about that. Communicating it builds that love. It shows that intimacy, but that doesn't prove my love. I can send her kissy face emojis. I might even find a really good gif. But that's not love. I can buy her flowers. Actually, I can't. (laughs) Chocolate. But that's still not love. It might be an expression of love, but that's not love. Think about these things, guys. As a church family, we can go through the motions. We can say anything we want. We can sing together. We can go through all of the routine. That doesn't mean we love each other. The way that we show our love is the way that we lay ourselves down for each other. The way we bear one another's burdens. When I love her as Christ loved me, then I'm truly expressing the love that Christ calls me toward. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do you know that you really love someone? How do we know that we love each other? When their concerns, when their needs, when their burdens are more important than my own. That's the truest expression of love. Love's not a feeling. It's not a sympathy. It's not an emotion. By the way, I have to say it, though it's going to seem out of place, because our culture completely doesn't understand this. Love is not sexual interaction. It's not at all. The truest love considers the needs of our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in Christ, before our own needs. This is what Paul's talking about in Galatians 6. Last point. And as you do this, be humble. As you do this, be humble. So as we restore our brother in transgression, we're to love. We're to sacrificially bear their burden. And remember, these actions are not actions of the flesh. Because if they are, it's going to get all muddled up. It's going to turn into enmity, strife, and those kind of breakdowns, right? We can't be doing this by the flesh. It must be done as we're led by the spirit, the spiritual, which also means we're to be humble. Humble. As we are recipients of grace, we're to show grace. 
How dare I look to my brother's splinter when I have planks in my own eyes? Which means we're to be humble. We're to minister through this process of restoration with humility. Verses 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paraphrase, you're full of yourself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And just simply explaining that, what Paul is saying as he's looking at this, by the way, it's the Holy Spirit who's bringing this to us. But as we're looking at this, so often we justify and elevate or de-elevate ourselves in the way that we look on this horizontal plane at each other. And he's, again, just reminding us, as you evaluate and as you're seeking to be humble in this restoration process, look in the mirror. Look at your own heart. Evaluate yourself. For each will have to bear his own load. Humility is what's being addressed here. When we think of the spiritual in verse 1, we know this is not a pharisaical perspective. The classic example is the Pharisee who didn't pray to God but prayed to himself. We see this in Luke 18, verses 11 to 12. And this is not how we should restore one another. This is not how we should be looking to each other. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, thank you that I am not like that other man. You hear the words? Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look at how good I am. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's just abundantly, redundantly clear. This is not humility. This is exactly an example. This is an illustration of how we're not to respond to one another. Galatians 6 is a call for humility. It's a call that remembers that we have not been saved by our works of the law, by our good deeds, by our justification, by our self-righteousness. We are recipients of grace. And as we have received grace, we too are to show grace. We're to show kindness. We're to show mercy. Because we've been saved by grace, and the Father has been patient with us in His call for repentance, we're to be patient we're to be forbearing. We're to be slow to these kinds of things and recognize that there is a time and a place to ultimately come to that conclusion, but we're to bear that burden and we're to do it in humility. It's appropriate to humbly look into the mirror and address our own sin before the transgression of our brother or sister in Christ. By the way, those of you that are going to small group tonight, you're looking for questions, right? I don't have any for you this morning. I think so many of them are self-evident. You're going to have fun tonight in your small group thinking about how do we apply and how does this fit our life circumstance. As we wrap this up, it is an imperative in verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. This is a requirement for the local church that we should hold one another accountable. We are to do this in love. We're to do this with patience. We're to do this as we're led by the Spirit. There is a right way to do this. That means there is a wrong way to do this. Another interesting thing is this text does not leave any ground for ignoring our brothers and sisters' sin. No Midwest nice. No live and let live. All transgression. We have a duty to each other. 
For those of you who are members of Bethany Baptist Church, most of you filled in a ballot this morning. We have covenanted to one another in this very matter. I want you to think about that. What is a covenant? It is a binding, locking agreement. We as elders are working more diligently to recognize the fact that we as members need to know what we've bound ourselves in. What is this covenant? And as I was working through this text this week, I honestly, in light of the discussions we've had about our covenant, I thought, that's exactly what our covenant's talking about. This is how we're to abide with one another. Bethany Baptist Church has an actual covenant. You can't read that. If you can, you have spiritual, supernatural powers. You might be able to read it and follow along as I read it to you this morning. This is how we have made a binding agreement to each other. This isn't just that, oh, that document that's in the Constitution that we never pay attention to. This is us. We have agreed to this. Hear these words. Notice the first person. I covenant with this body that with the aid of the Holy Spirit, spiritual, I will faithfully attend the gatherings of this church and support its worship, ordinances, ministries, discipline, doctrine, and leaders. I will contribute willingly and faithfully of my time and money as acts of worship. I will pursue unity, love, wholesome and edifying speech, and I will seek to serve others as I exercise genuine concern and spiritual care. I will rejoice with those who rejoice, and I will bear the burdens of those who suffer. I will faithfully admonish and encourage others to live holy lives, considering their spiritual needs to be more important than my own desires. I will devote myself to the word, prayer, and the faithful proclamation of the gospel. I will seek to be a faithful member of this or another authentic New Testament local church until the Lord returns or calls me home. This is our covenant. We are responsible to this. Stand with me. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You can read. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. God has spoken to us this morning. This is the word of God.